My name's Ross. If you've got a Bible with you, go to Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. That's where we're going to be this morning. And um, in fact, we did some background last week. We looked at, at sort of the history of Ephesus, um, and we'll get into the book uh, this week. I'll start it this, this way. There are a few rules um, in our, uh, in our country that are still on the books, some laws that are still on the books that are surprising. You can Google all kinds of laws that are on the books. But these are some that I thought were funny. Young girls in Wheeler, Mississippi, um, it is illegal for them to walk on a tightrope unless it's in a church. So, Wheeler, Mississippi. Uh, Blackwater, Kentucky. Tickling a woman under her chin with a feather duster while she's in church carries a penalty of $10 and one day in jail. I know, right? No one can eat unshelled roasted peanuts while attending church in Adana, Oregon, Honey Creek, Iowa. No one is permitted to carry a slingshot to church except a policeman. No citizen in Lee Creek, Arkansas is allowed to attend, attend church in any red-colored garment because, you know, red. Swinging a yo-yo in church or anywhere in public on the Sabbath is prohib- prohibited in Studley, Virginia. And uh, in Slaughter, Louisiana, turtle races are not permitted within 100 yards of a local church at any time. So, consider yourself informed uh, when traveling to those places. As we begin this series this morning um, properly uh, in Ephesians, our study in Ephesians, one of the things that we're going to be looking at is we're looking at what is the church. It's very much what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. Who, Who are we as the church and what do we do? as the people of the church. And I want us to be clear from the very beginning that we're not going to be talking about a bunch of rules. In fact, we're going to be going in the, in the very opposite direction of that. One of the major themes of this book, and we're going to see it this morning, and we'll see it next week, and we'll see it the week after that. One of the major themes is grace. Not what we uh, say out of habit before a meal, but, but grace, grace that changes our life, grace that is so radical and so different from anything else the world knows. And so with that, I want to open this morning by reading this first half of chapter 1, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is what he writes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. If you will, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do what only you can do. That is that you would take the divine words that you revealed and inspired, and Father, that you have preserved for all these centuries, this living and active word. And that, Father, it would work its way into our minds, that it would would transform us, it would renew us. Father, that, that you would draw us to your Son this morning. And so we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, amen. Well, it's been said, if if Romans is Paul's theological masterpiece, then Ephesians is his literary masterpiece. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said this, it is the divinest composition of man. It is thoroughly eloquent. It was written when Paul was in prison in Rome, somewhere around A.D. 60 or 61. It was written along with the other um, letters known as the prison epistles, Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And this is probably the last of those prison letters, those prison epistles that was written and probably written and delivered the same time as Colossians and Ephesians. 
After the writing of this letter, at some point, Paul was released from the imprisonment in Rome, although we do not have the biblical record of it in Acts. But it's likely when he writes the pastoral epistles, Titus and 1 Timothy, before he was arrested again. And then he wrote 2 Timothy, and then was martyred shortly after that. So this may be the last official letter to the church, if you don't count the pastoral epistles. Well, well, last week we covered the background of, of Ephesus, and we went to Acts chapter 18 and 19 and a little bit of 20, and we looked at where we're introduced to Ephesus in the Scriptures. And this week is, is going to be an overview of the letter, and it's written by Paul. I want you to, um, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn back quickly to Acts chapter 28, and I will show you where most believe, um, it seems evident, that um, where Paul was when he is writing this. And Luke has been telling the story of Acts. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And it says in Acts 28, verse 30, and he lived there, this is in Rome, under, um, under guard and imprisoned. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The picture there at the end of Acts, if we took the time to look, would be Paul there living by his, at his own expense. It was under a house arrest. He had to provide for all of his own needs while occupying that space with a Roman guard who would have been constantly there, and Paul would have been constantly under his watch. It's a captive audience, so to speak. Can you imagine how Paul badgered that Roman guard? You wonder in the end who was really imprisoned by whom, right? But that's where Paul is, and he's writing to this church. Now, I'll show you one more thing, and then we'll be done with those, uh, with flipping around. But if you look at the end of Ephesians, the end of chapter 6, I want you to see verse 21, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is likely the messenger. He's likely the one who delivered the letter from Paul. He is also mentioned at the end of the uh, letter to the Colossians in the same way. He is mentioned in, in Titus and in 2 Timothy. In Acts chapter 20, he's listed as one of Paul's companions, a, a messenger, a preacher, and that's how the letter gets from the Roman um, house arrest to the Ephesian church. Well, Paul begins the letter um, like most of the letters that he writes in, in a very um, 
ordinary and normal way of the way letters were presented, of who, who's writing the letter, um, who the letter is to, and then a word of greeting. And yet, Paul takes an ordinary means of addressing a letter and turns it into an extraordinary theological statement. Look at it again, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to keep in mind that when we think about Paul, and it's particularly important as you think about the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is a man who, who comes from three distinct heritages, if you will, three distinct and overlapping backgrounds. And yet, at the end of the day, his identity is in none of those. His identity is in Christ. We'll consider Paul's past, but then move quickly to Paul's present. His total identity in Christ. We'll talk a minute about Paul's story. To do that, let me read this to you. It is from Frederick Buechner, and it's helpful when you think about considering the past. He said, it is important to tell at least time to time the secret of who we truly and fully are, even if we tell it only to ourselves, because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are and little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth in hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. And it is in our stories that God makes himself known to each of us most powerfully and personally. Throughout church history, early in church history, there are some physical descriptions of Paul. One early uh, church father writes, a small man of stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness, for now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. Other accounts tell us that Paul had a beard, and we can't be entirely sure of all of those descriptions, um, if they're correct or not, but that's what the history of the church records. But when you think about Paul's heritage, the first to consider is that he was known early in his life for the first half of his life as Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus. This is what we would speak of as his Hellenistic heritage, his, the, the culture of Greek, of the Greeks that he was born into. To Tarsus, where he's from, Paul owes his fluency in the Greek language, his familiarity with the culture of the day. He was, he was current. Paul was a man who was relevant in his time. The Greek historian Strabo 
wrote, Tarsus surpassed Athens and Alexandria in its love for philosophy. It was a free Roman city, which meant it, um, it could operate autonomously, and that, that came about because of the loyalty they had shown to Antony and Octavia after the murder of Julius Caesar. Tarsus was given a favored status, and that was the culture he grew up in. Paul's family, they were Jews that lived outside of Palestine. That means they were part of the dysphoria, and if you think about the Jews in the book of Esther, then you're getting close. The synagogue would have been at the center of the community life for, for Paul and his family. Every Sabbath, every feast, every tradition, in fact, Paul in Acts 23 reports that his father was a Pharisee, so he knew the tradition. And one of the things that Paul would have undoubtedly experienced growing up in Tarsus as a Jew were the Gentiles that would come to the synagogues, the ones that would come in search of the one true God. Gentiles could come to the synagogue, they could come to the Jewish faith in two fashions, one as proselytes, the other is God fears. Both observed the synagogue worship. Proselytes were considered fully Jewish, however, because they went through the rite of circumcision. God fearers, they were devotees without circumcision. All that to say, what Paul would have witnessed growing up is he would have witnessed Gentiles seeking a relationship with God. It may have been this time in his life that Paul began a passion for the Gentiles. He probably had no idea what role in the life of Gentiles he would play someday. His training in the Greek language has never been debated. Paul was a master. He was a great student of both language and culture. And yet you see in the writings of Paul, though familiar with the Greek writers of the day, he's thoroughly steeped in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's a versed man. He knows it backwards and forwards. He knew how to nuance it. I knew one guy in life. I've known one guy in real life um, who, who literally had the entire New Testament memorized. And he read it and remembered it and would recite it with, with passion. Well, the textbooks in the school for Paul would have been written by the likes of Aristotle and Cicero. Particularly interesting about his days in Tarsus was his familiarity with the athletics of the day. What, what makes it interesting is that most Jews wouldn't have anything to do with the gymnasium. They viewed the athletic competition uh, that was practiced by the Greeks at the time. They viewed it as vile and partly because the athletes competed in the nude in the midst of huge stadiums. Yet Paul draws on the images of the gymnasium and the athletic events throughout his letters. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I think it's by design that this dysphoria Jew 
from Gentile country, ended up being the apostle to the Gentiles. He's not only Saul from Tarsus, he is Saul the Roman citizen. Culturally, literarily, the, the, the world Paul lived in was Greek. It was a Hellenistic world. But politically, the world belonged to Rome. The influence on day-to-day life was dominated by Rome. By the time Paul was a boy, Rome had firmly established its rule throughout the Mediterranean region. Jerusalem, where, where Paul would later go to study, was a heavy Roman presence. But Paul was a citizen of Rome, born a Roman citizen. That citizenship was something his father had earned or had bought. But Paul was born a Roman citizen and had all the rights that went with being a Roman. There's not much Roman influence on Paul, and yet his Roman citizenship can never be discounted. He used it to influence a few situations while he was in custody. He would have been able to get around to all the places that he traveled with ease because of his status. One writer said, Paul owed little to Rome for his message. He owed much to Rome for his mission. Not only is he Saul from Tarsus and Saul the Roman citizen, but he's also Saul the Jew, the apostle to the Gentiles, had plenty of opportunity to preach to the Jews. Some four to five million Jews living abroad in the first century. Every major city had at least one synagogue. Rome had at least 11. The Jewish population in Rome alone was over 50,000. And in Philippians, Paul paints the most detailed portrait of himself anywhere. He says, though I myself have reasons for confidence. If anyone thinks he has Reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcision on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul was wanting the Philippian church to know, to be sure they know, that nothing of their merit can gain favor with Christ. Their hope is in nothing else. Paul here, he's not forsaking the past. He doesn't ignore his past. He doesn't hide his past. He states it for what it is, and it is nothing compared to Christ. How are we doing? We're one word into Ephesians. It might take us a while. Well, notice how he, de- he describes himself to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 1, he'll call himself a prisoner for the Lord. To the Philippians, to the Romans, to the Colossians, he calls him, or to the Philippians and the Romans, he calls himself a servant of Christ. And Philemon, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. When Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus and in prison for the Lord, but Paul was not saved based on his merit. He was saved by the grace of Christ Jesus. His identity, his hope for salvation never rested 
not in his citizenship, not in his education, not in his brilliance, not in his family heritage. It rested in Christ. It's a stark statement that Paul makes. See, before before he was an apostle of Christ Jesus, he was the chief persecutor of Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 9 records his conversion, and he's on the road to Damascus to stamp out the, this, this movement of the followers of Christ. He's blinded on the road, and Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I want us to know that Paul's neither more qualified because of his past, nor was he disqualified because of his past. Your past does not disqualify you from your future in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. It's, it's by the will of God. That's the only thing that matters in Paul's life. He's, he, he's a, he has a past filled with both honor and shame before the Lord. He doesn't boast in it. He doesn't wallow in it. His identity is in Christ. He knows that his grace was not earned. He knows that he's not disqualified from that grace. But by the will of God, God took it all. Paul was uniquely qualified for the task that God had called him to because God had called him. And I think this gives us hope. I mean, you and I are so uniquely qualified for the task that God's called us to. We have high points. We have low points. None of us, none of it, none of the high points, none of the low points, none of it makes us deserving of grace. We're less deserving of it. It is by the will of God. The hope that that brings to you and me is that we're not only free to embrace our past, but we must embrace our past. This doesn't mean celebrate it. But we've got to quit running from our history and embrace the things that have come about in our life with the full knowledge that it was never beyond what God knew about you. I mean, if God can say to Jeremiah... Uh, you were formed, uh, before you were formed in, in the womb, I knew you. Then so can we. And the psalmist in Psalm 139 praises God by saying, you, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb and goes on to say that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And if the psalmist can say it, so can we. There's no way to know how important or significant our story is until we embrace God's perfect design in our life. Listen, there are certainly things that will cause you to, to wince with shame. But God's perfect plan has never been thwarted. It's hard to imagine. It's 
It seems impossible to comprehend. And so many people are running from their past. We can get so focused on it in ways that it controls our lives. I have a friend in Dallas who's a counselor, and he told me a story about when he was teaching his daughter how to drive. He, he said they went out, and he found the barest parking lot that he could, uh, so there was no chance of hitting any cars there. So they practiced in the parking lot. The next step was to move uh, to a parking lot that had a few cars, and then they graduated to this sort of real live city street with parked cars against the curbs. They got to the end of the street. He gets out. She gets in the driver's seat. She takes over, and what he says to her is, honey, just don't hit the cars. Well, before she could even start down the road, she, she freezes up. She's paralyzed. She couldn't do it. She was too scared of hitting the parked cars. They seemed to be everywhere. So Steve, my friend, he humbled himself. He decided to go back to the parent training manual that he had been advised to read and was surprised to find out that his philosophy had been totally wrong. His theology of driving cars and teaching others to drive cars has radically changed since then. The manual said to make sure you don't tell the new driver not to hit the cars. Instead, tell them to aim for the open spaces. Let me tell you, that's a radical change in thought. That's a life-changing thought. You aim for the open spaces. When, when we're focused on the parked cars in our life or in our past, we are sure to hit them. We, we hit what we're focused on. We need to be focused on the open spaces. And let me tell you something. Paul is going to tell us that the open spaces are God's grace. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but let me ask you, what are you focused on? What are you trying so hard not to, uh, to, to you know, make a past mistake, repeat something? You'd, what are you running from in your history? See, as long as you stay focused on that, you'll be held hostage to it. In Christ, we have the freedom to embrace the whole of our life because we have a God who can redeem it all. Christ came that we might have life and have it to the fullest, he says in John 10.10. 10. We're not just barely saved. If you're saved this morning, you're not saved by the skin of your teeth. Paul wasn't just barely saved by Christ from the evil sins of persecuting Christ. He was saved all the way. He was saved to a degree that really is un. Imaginable, he was saved by grace, and so are we. You're not just barely saved. You're not the last one picked for the team. Well, he was writing it, and he says, to the saints, to the saints in Ephesus, the, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Maybe a more descriptive term here would be for us to say God's people. I, I don't know about you, but when I hear saint, it, it implies something that I don't see possible for me to live up to. You know, saint implies something maybe I can take credit for. When we call people saints, it's, it's usually based on 
something they've done. I mean, we give people the title of saint because they, they stand out over and above those around us. Maybe it's why Paul is saying this about the people in this church. Maybe Paul has a different meaning. Maybe Paul means saints from God's perspective. And if that's true, then it doesn't matter one bit about the person from our eyes. It's God's eyes that behold the saint. A saint is one set apart as not common, called to be used by God. In fact, the word Paul uses, hagias. It means set apart as holy or consecrate, called to be the people of God. See, in the way Paul's using it, it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the individuals that Paul's writing to. It's a plural adjective used to describe to us the quality of the people he's addressing, namely that they are people in relationship to God. He doesn't tell us about their state of holiness. It communicates their identification from God's perspective. It doesn't have to do with them. It has to do with God because he sees them. He's going to tell us he sees them in Christ. That's why Paul can call them saints who are in Ephesus. We looked at that last week. One word about that, though. It's likely a circular letter. Likely we could go to Colossians 4 and see some evidence for this, but likely it was written to the church at Ephesus, but meant to be distributed around to the other churches in Asia Minor. So, it could easily be written to us, to the saints at Bethel Bible Church in Tyler, Texas. To those that are faithful in Christ Jesus, the phrase in Christ Jesus is used 27 times in this letter. It describes the spiritual position of the believer. You're identified with Christ, in Christ, able to draw strength from Christ for your daily life. In an interview with Muhammad Ali's back in 2001, I don't know what the question was, but the answer that Ali gives was, one day we're all going to die and God is going to judge us. Our good deeds and our bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. I'll tell you, the the gospel of Jesus, the letter to the Ephesians, knows nothing of this kind of theology. It's not the kind of theology you you put your faith in, you give your life to, but it is, unfortunately, the kind of theology so many people just walk around with. Did I do more good than bad today? We look in the mirror and we judge ourselves based on that. Listen, if you're here this morning, and that's the thought, that's the idea that you live by, it's the It's the idea that nags you in the back of your mind. I want you to know Paul is going to clearly dispel that idea. In fact, the implications of Paul's truth are staggering. It could be said like this. Yes, God knows all the good and the bad you do. And here's his verdict. 
You cannot be so bad that you're out of reach of grace. And you can never be good enough to earn that grace. You can never be so bad as to put yourself out of the reach of the grace of God. You never be so good as to earn it or deserve it. Well, in verse 2, I think this introduces two of at least the major themes in this letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One preacher said grace and peace are twin sisters, grace being the firstborn, and where grace abound, peace thrives, and where grace is stunted, peace shrivels, grace. God's unmerited and undeserved mercy and favor. He showers it on you because of his great love for you. See, in God's grace, he he reaches down. He he sees us in our need and in our coming to Christ. He pours out his favor on us, and he does it continually over and over and over again until we meet him face to face. That's why Paul uses the word lavished there later on down in this chapter. We're lavished in grace. Well, he says, peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls on God to pour out his provision of grace upon the readers and the hallmark of the, of the new covenant. And peace is the result of that grace. But peace is what God does for us when, when He reconciles us to Himself. He, he puts us right with Himself. Peace comes as a, as a benefit. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel points to the age that God's promised a covenant of peace that will be an everlasting covenant. Isaiah reveals the Messiah, Jesus, will come as the Prince of Peace. And and, uh, Zechariah talks of the humble king who will come and speak peace to the nations. The angels announce at Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. The peace was announced in Acts as the, at the proclamation of the gospel. Paul tells us it's the result of justification. It's a fruit of the Spirit. One theologian describes it. What kind of peace? It's a peace is a state of untroubled, undeserved well-being. It's the kind of peace Jesus calmed a raging storm with. A peace that has power because it's from God. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ.
This grace and peace, it dominates Paul's mind. Fills his vision for who we are as the people of God, as the church of, of Christ. And I'll say this, the better you come to know Ephesians over these next months, the better you will come to know Christ. Well, I'm out of time. I was going to quickly preview the next few verses, but we'll look at them together next week. I'll say this by way of saying there are ten things. In verses 3 through 14, I would say ten things that are staggering for us as people of God, as believers in Christ. And it's not prosperity theology. It's about your spiritual life. It's about your eternal life. One guy says it takes a man whose life was changed to write a life-changing letter. Paul certainly fits that description. And Ephesians certainly can be described as a life-changing letter. If you've never studied it, let me say again, let me invite you. Would you read it this week? Would you spend the 15 or 20 minutes to read through the six chapters in this letter? If you have an extra few minutes, look at these verses, 3 through 14 this week, and see if you can see the 10 staggering, amazing things that God has done for us in His Son, Christ. Let me ask you this morning. If you were to rate your, your Christian life, for those of you that are believers, on a scale from 1 to 10, what would the rating be and why? What would the rating be and why? Well, I give myself a four. Kind of fallen out of reading my Bible. I haven't prayed in a while. Church attendance hasn't been very regular, and I don't like the online business. I'd probably give it a four. Maybe somebody in here, no, I'd give it an eight. It's pretty great. I even washed my car before I came to church this morning. Pressed my shirt. Remembered my Bible. Seventeen days into the new year, and I haven't missed one of those on my Bible reading plan yet. I'll give it an eight. Well, I would say that if that's the rating that you give, or more importantly, that's the why you give the rating, or some version of that, then you're in desperate need of a life-changing letter to have an impact in your life. Because Paul is going to undo all of that thinking for us. 
He will take us to both the heights and the depths, the lengths and the breadth of God's grace and His love for us in His Son, Jesus. So join us. Come with us. Be a, do this study with us. Press in. I guarantee you will see Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer or you're watching us online, I'm glad you're here. And this seems foreign to you or you just check in this Christianity out or trying to figure this out. Hang with us. Come with us. Come discover that there's nothing in your past that can disqualify you from the future that God has for you. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I do what only you can do this morning. Would you take the truth of your word? And Father, would it would it fall down on us like, like rain? Down into the innermost parts of us. Father, would your spirit awaken us and open our eyes and soften our hearts and tune our ears? to hear you calling us to your Son, Jesus. Father, grant us the faith to believe, to take hold of all that you have given us freely in the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus. Father, we, we give these things to you. We Give them to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, to the praise of your glory.